Happy Mother's Day, all your mothers. I made sure my wife was well taken care of today. She's eating at our daughter's, and they're having a big family fest, but I look forward to being out here, and I appreciate getting to know your new pastor. I've met his wife yet, but I see you right there. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I noticed some of you coming in, and you forgot to pick up one of my manuals from the back table. Uh, pastor Mark, uh, if, you, if you raise your hand, if you need one of the manuals, uh, raise your hand, and Mark will share it with you. Maybe you don't like this German heresy, but uh, <laughs> I've been trying to think when it was the, my first time out here. Susan, do you remember? Uh, many, many years ago. But at any rate, I've always enjoyed being here and it's always been a blessing to fellowship with you people. Uh, your pastor and I decided that we would do something, what we call personal eschatology. Eschatology is a study of last things. And how does the future relate to us personally? And so I've entitled the series, Practical Prophecies for Concerned Christians. And then you have inside the front cover, and of course in your church bulletin as well, our schedule, the best is yet to come for the Sunday school hour, and then the mother, Mother's Day message, I already gave away my title, Hannah, a paragon or the paragon of motherhood. And then tonight, uh, you may not, never have heard a message about the intermediate body. From the time we die till we are resurrected, which will be according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, at the rapture, how do we exist? Well, many people don't even talk about it. It's not that a pastor doesn't know or care about it, but that's not, he can't deal with every detail of biblical prophecy. But there are those who deny that there is a, an intermediate body for the believer from the time we die till we are resurrected. And we'll explore that interesting topic tonight. I hope it will be interesting. Then at the church to which I belong in Iowa and Des Moines, Fellowship Baptist, we have a lot of senior saints and they lost their spouses. And repeatedly they ask, what is my husband, what is my wife doing in glory now? And the Bible is relatively silent about the future, except I can give you at least seven or eight activities, most of them, if not all of them, very enjoyable for the future. And so that's what we'll be covering tomorrow night. I don't know what your vocation has been or is in this life, but uh, how, how long is this life in light of eternity? Poof, and it's gone. Eternity is a long time, and the Bible foretells some glorious activities for the believer. And then the heavenly Jerusalem, our eternal home. One reason why Christ hasn't come back for us, I suppose, is because he's building that home for us 
that he promised the night before his crucifixion in John chapter 14. I go to prepare a place for you. You know the scriptures well enough. I know you folks. Uh, and when that is done by implication, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He could have created our eternal home in a split second if he had wanted to. But remember, it took the Lord just six days to create the world, the universe. It's taken him over 2,000 years to prepare our home, eternal home. People say, what a beautiful, beautiful place that must be. Some folks wondered, what else am I doing while I'm out here? Well, I'm sleeping, I'm eating, and <laughs> I have meetings uh, Friday through a Sunday for one of my former students in Marion. I was there two years ago when I was here with you folks, but they implored me to do something I did many years ago here uh, on the Bible and archeology. span The thing is, I told Pastor Jake Madwick, I said, between the time we plan these meetings and the time we actually have them, that was about a month and a half ago when we finalized the date and uh, your pastor was very gracious to fit me in with the dates in Marion. But I said, between the time we plan it now and the time we have the meeting, I bet several major important archeological discoveries have been made. And I'm gonna include those, the last session is always brand new discoveries. How many of you, just by way of interest, in the last three weeks read about or heard about a tablet that was found on Mount Ebal, a metal tablet folded in half, but they used advanced tomography to read 30, actually 40 letters inside. Anybody read about the Cursus tablet? No. Well, you need to come to, not on Sunday, but Friday and Saturday, you need to, <laughs> need to come to Marion if you can find the place. It's a beautiful location. I, I was there, like I said, two years ago. But there's a tablet they found. And the good thing, there's several good things about it. The people who found it are fundamental Bible-believing Christians. Most archaeologists are very skeptical about the Bible. But this group called Associates of Biblical Research, they have a magazine called Bible and the Spate, which is totally reliable. There are very few archeology span magazines that you can depend. They have beautiful pictures, they have up-to-date information about recent discoveries, but when it comes to believing Moses wrote the Pentateuch and this and this and this, they're skeptics. But they read the letters inside that tablet through tomography, and they found out this is the earliest Hebrew writing they ever found. It's called Proto-Hebrew, or Proto-Alphabetical. But it dates back to the days of the conquest, and it's found at a place where when they conquered Canaan under Joshua on Mount Ebal, the people, part of the people, shouted curses across the valley on Mount Gerizim. They shouted blessings. And so the tablet says, 
Cursed, 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 says your God, Yahweh, and it uses the personal name of God in a writing that had never been found before, 600 years earlier than the earliest Hebrew to date. That's why they call it the discovery of a thousand years. I'm not sure whether this is justified. They are publishing the complete information now in a peer review magazine so other scholars can look at the evidence, say, yeah, that's true, but the people who examine it are not Bible believers, the ones who have the machine that uh, can read all these inside letters. But may you be, the second line says, may you be cursed. The third line, cursed may you be. And then your God says, no, Yahweh your God says, cursed, cursed, cursed. Who's being cursed? Well, when they read part of the law on Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, back in 1405 BC. It was, cursed are those who violate the law of the Lord and who turn to idols. Israel, unfortunately, didn't abide by that before too long. Many of them, not all of them, fell in idolatry. And on the other mountain, they shouted, blessed be those who obey the law of the Lord, who follow in his ways, and so on. You can read about that in Joshua chapter 8. So that's the most recent, one of the most recent exciting discoveries. And I have some materials. And uh, of course, I'll be sharing that with the folks. So I'm doing archaeology there on next weekend. Right now, we're concerned about our personal future. Uh, People who are secular scientists or philosophers have all sort of weird ideas about the future. Stephen Hawkins says the Earth will be a fireball by 2,600. How does he know? He knows better now. He's dead. But uh, they have all sorts of weird uh, calculations. Maybe you heard about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who says we only have 12 years left. Actually, now they're down to six months. <laughs> they call it climate change. They used to call it climate, you know, earth warming. Of course, cl there's climate change. I saw it 100 times yesterday. <laughs> rain, sunshine, sleet, snow, sunshine, rain. It's bad in Iowa, but this is even more extreme. Though I don't mind it. I mean, um, I have a message on an ignored aspect of God's sovereignty, Psalm 147 and Psalm 148, because the weather comes from God. It's a direct messenger from God. The psalmist says, who can stand before his cold? What's the antecedent of his? Satan? No. It's God. He sends forth the ice and the snow like morsels. Of course, he sends the rain and the sunshine, but he sends the weather. In the uh, book of Job, we read one of Job's friends, <laughs> miserable comforter, saying, who can stand before his cold? Does that mean you have to like the weather? But when you curse the weather, you're really cursing the direct will of God.
but I'm meddling in another area of theology. Here's the uh, Casey, the taxi driver, uh, or the taxi driver, talking to Casey. Says, Casey, you know the guy who told me the world would end August 30th? Yeah, Joe. Today he tells me he's been moved up to November 4th. How come? He said he changed religions. <laughs> Everybody has a different idea about the end of the world, but the only true knowledge we have of end times is in the Bible. In your first outline, I have four pages, and the last one is not numbered, and I just want to start with uh, the summary and then go through some details. I mentioned in our introduction in written format that some time ago I spoke in a church in East Hampton, I didn't mention the church, East Hampton, Massachusetts. The pastor there, I used to live in Springfield, Mass, when I get off, got off the boat back in 1953. I lived there for 10 years. So East Hampton, just up along the Connecticut River. Any of you familiar with Massachusetts? East Hampton, North Hampton, Jonathan Edwards' hometown, and then Southampton, and anyway. Okay, in that church, the pastor was new. He had come from Maine, and before he had me speak on prophecy, his brother Cobra, just to see how familiar my uh, new congregation was with prophecy, I said, how many of you can think your way through the major events of end times? He said, Brother Cobra, three people raised their hands. Three out of probably 160 people. Now, I had been in that church before he ever became a pastor. And the predecessors were good, solid men who preached the whole counsel of God. But we dare not presuppose that people in our congregations know about end time events. You can't know everything, but as far as the believer is concerned, you and me, our future is nothing but good. That's why the topic is the best is yet to come. Look, we're in the church age now, right? And you remember, possibly remember from two years ago, we talked about main events in the future. The rapture, the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, Gog and Magog, Russia invading Israel, and then meanwhile, in heaven, the judgment seat and the marriage of the Lamb, and then the return with Christ. This is probably the most significant prophetic event of all times, probably because it's mentioned over 1,000 times in the Bible. The rapture is barely mentioned because that's an event for just the church age believers. And Christ mentioned it for the first time the night before his crucifixion. But then we talked about the millennium and about briefly about the eternal state. Okay, for the believer, superimposing that on the timeline, on page four, you have a reduced diagram like this. If people says, what's going to happen? You say, well, what's going to happen to me? I have some good news for you. If you're a Christian, here's what's going to happen the future and the saint. First of all, readiness of the saint. We expect the Lord's coming, right? When will the rapture be? Well, everyone else has his ideas. 
The rapture is a time when Jesus Christ will raise the dead and translate the living. The main passage is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that gives you the sequence. But as I mentioned before, the first announcement is made by Christ in John chapter 14. Now, he kept part of the promises so far. I go, and he went to prepare a place. That's what he's doing. And by implication, he's going to keep the rest of his promise. I will come again. That is coming for us. Then what? To take you, take us to heaven. Where I am, there you may be also. There are more and more people, unfortunately, in the evangelical camp who deny the any moment return of Christ, or as we call it, the pre-tribulational rapture. But when they deny that, and our friends in the evangelical free church, you may be familiar with their doctrinal situation, about five years ago they changed their doctrinal statement on the end times. They eliminated Christ's premillennial and pre-tribulational return. And there's such a hue and cry among the pastors and people. They left in premillennial, and they dropped pre-tribulation. So it read, until last summer, we believe in the premillennial return of Christ. Last summer, they eliminated premillennial as well. And now it reads, we believe in the glorious return of the Lord. Well, when is that? Before the tribulation? halfway through, or only those who are saintly, who are godly, are raptured, a partial rapture, or Marf Rosenthal's view, the pre-wrath rapture, you go three-fourths through the tribulation, then you have, or the post-trib rapture, which is very popular. No. Three times the Holy Spirit says it. We are not appointed under wrath, but under salvation. I mention the references here. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, 5, 9, and Romans 5, 9. And there's a passage. The clearest proof text on the rapture is in Revelation 3, 10. I will keep you from the hour, from the very time of temptation or testing, which will be upon the whole earth. The rapture for us, for you and me, is a blessed hope. It's a purifying hope. It's a comforting hope. It's a sure hope. You have the scripture references here, but that is a glorious anticipation. When will the rapture occur? I don't know. That's why my first topic is readiness. Somebody says, live every day. Actually, it's Dr. Dr. Ketchum, one of the founders of our fellowship of regular Baptist church. Live every day as if it were your last, and someday you'll be right. This, every day as if this were the day of the rapture, and someday you're going to be correct. Readiness. Uh, some time ago, I spoke in a church in Iowa, and a dear brother came up to me afterwards. He said, Dr. Kober, the Lord can't come back today. I said, why not? He said, because it's already tomorrow in Australia. <laughs> I'm still trying to contemplate the theological implication of that. But... In a general state, wherever you were when the Lord comes back, it'll be today at that place, whether it's in Bungo Bungo or in 
Swaziland or in Germany or here in the United States. So we live with ready expectancy. As I indicate in our notes, we work as if the Lord were not coming back for another hundred years, but we live as if he were coming back today. Every man that has this hope in self does what? He purifies himself, right? So we live a life of eager expectancy. In my office at home, I have attached to the top of the door as you leave a piece of wood that a friend of mine in Germany carved for me. I asked him to do that. It says, do we have anybody here who speaks German? Der Herr ist nahe. The Lord is near. I don't, I don't know how near. But the Lord is not in heaven pushing off the date of the rapture, Father. That date had been set in eternity past. What we don't know about the rapture, people in the tribulation could know about the second advent because the tribulation is exactly seven years in length, 1260 days and 1260 days. But for the believer, forget about the tribulation. When, when the stuff happened in February in the invasion in, in Ukraine, the Russian people said, is this the end of the days? Is this a fulfillment of Gog and Mega? All this is nonsense. It's called newspaper exegesis. Before any of these events of the tribulation happens, you and I are out of here. Okay, I think many Christians are somewhat hesitant to look forward to the coming of Christ because of the next event for the believer. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, the term is not necessarily the best term because it's a time of rewards. The judgment seat is not a judgment seat in a courtroom, but it's a judgment seat at, at an athletic event where the umpires are judging, judging the athletes. As far as your sin and minus are concerned, we have three judgments. Sin was taken care of at the cross. The moment that you and I trusted in Christ as Savior, and I hope all of you here have had that, have made that decision in your life, you realize you're a sinner. There's nothing you could do to save yourself. This is why Christ came. He died on the cross for your sins. And when you accepted him, in that very moment, you became eternally a child of God. And your sins were washed away. In this life, if we stray away from the way of the Lord, he may discipline us. Hebrews chapter 12. Every genuine son is disciplined if he walks disorderly. It has nothing to do with punishment for sin. It's just the Lord wanting us to walk in his ways. At the judgment seat, we give an account of what we did with our time, treasure, and talents. So the judgment seat is not a judgment for sin, but an evaluation of your life and mine. I dare say, at the judgment seat, you and I have many more rewards or awards ready than we ever realized. 
not that we just serve them, but the Lord said, every action we do, whatsoever you do, whether you what? Eat or drink, do all to what? For the glory of God. And if we do that, then what? A reward. Not because we deserve it, but because the Lord graciously offers us that reward. I have in a diagram, we had that probably two years ago as well. This is the judgment seat at an athletic contest. The athletes are punished for being slower than the other guy or other gals. The judgment seat is when the victorious athlete will receive a victor's garland. That's why the Bible speaks of five crowns, literally, Stephanos, something wrapped around. In biblical days, highly symbolic, but for all practical worthless. You know what they used between about 120 BC and 200 after Christ? Parsley, parsley. That's what a victorious athlete got on his head. But he wondered that because symbolically that meant he had first place. And here's the goddess of victory from Ephesus, Hellenistics here, placing a garland on the victorious athlete's uh, head. So that's the kind of rewards. Okay. The, the Bible speaks of all sorts of rewards and we can't take time to, to delineate them all. All I'm saying is look forward to the bima because the Lord has noticed everything you've done for him. You ladies, you mothers whom we honor in a special way today. Whenever you worked for your family, took care of your sick husband or sick children. You did it unselfishly. You did it not to get any praise. The Lord took notice. All these things are rewarded in heaven. I was in a home some time ago. I think it was in Illinois. And where in the kitchen over the sink, there was a little sign that the lady had put up. Divine services conducted three times daily. When she washed the dishes, she realized it was not primarily for her husband or her family, but for the Lord. So look forward to the bema seat. As far as your sins and mine are concerned, God says in Jeremiah 31 and then twice in the book of Hebrews, I have a couple references in our notes, their sins and their iniquities, I will, what? Remember no more. I have some dear, dear friends. They sat on the, in the same classroom with me at Dallas Theological Seminary. Jody Dillo, Paul Benware, good people. I mean, friends of mine. But they both have written books with a very negative aspect on the judgment seat. Because you and I, who are not faithful believers, will not have any part in the kingdom. They'll be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, says Jody Dillo. That's for unbelievers. That's, for, that's not for carnal Christians. There's an imbalance in most people's treatment of the Bema seed. If he won't remember my sins and iniquities, 
I'm not going to be stupid enough to remind the Lord of them. Of course he'll remember them, but traditionally, traditionally they'll not, never be brought against, against us. I could quote a number of recent books on that, making the judgment seat a time of, of uh, Protestant purgatory. In fact, ever hear of Clarence Mason? Clarence Mason taught for many years at Philadelphia College of the Bible. I happen to know him because I worked in Springfield, Mass. for a New England lady in her garden during the summers. And Clarence Mason married the girl next door. And so uh, once or twice a year, I would see him and talk to him. But he, and we shared in meetings together in Atlanta, Georgia, but Clarence Mason said in his doctor notes, and you can Google it, at the judgment seat, the penalty of sins is not an issue, but the results of sins is. So let's call it a purgatory. The judgment deed is a purgatory. It's a time when you and I will be vindicated. One of my professors at Dallas, Dr. Merle F. Unger, wrote a book which I think should be republished, Great Neglected Bible Prophecies. And a whole big section of that book is on the Bema seat. What a wonderful time that is for believers. If the rapture is the believer's fondest hope, the judgment seat or the Bema seat is the believer's finest hour. And the reason I say that is because on the longest passage on the judgment seat, which begins in 1 Corinthians 3.11, other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid in Christ Jesus, goes right through chapter 4, verse 5. And when all is said and done, the last phrase of the last verse on the judgment seat says was, and then shall every man have praise of God. At the judgment seat, the Lord examines your thoughts and my thoughts, your plans, my prejudices. To do what? To criticize us? No, to find something good about each one of us. I don't know how I'll feel at the judgment seat itself. Probably I'll regret missed opportunities, but how do I feel five seconds after? with the words of commendation of our Savior ringing in my ears and ringing in ears, well done, thou good and faithful servant. What could be more glorious? Look at your life, look at my life. All the problems, all the difficulties, all the disappointments, all the failures. And the Lord is going to find something good about you and you and every one of us and says, you have done well. Not in our own strength, but in the strength of the Holy Spirit. Okay, as we move along in our, by now you know some of the main events, right? They all start with an R. If you were asked, what's the, what are the events ahead of me, or ahead of you, readiness, and then the rapture, and then the rewards. There are two events 
indicated for the tribulation period, while there's an unprecedented time of tribulation on earth, there's an unparalleled time of celebration in heaven. Only two events are mentioned in the scriptures. There may be others. But Christ is decorating, as it were, the bride for the next event, which is the marriage of the Lamb. Whatever that event entails, we have been separated from our bridegroom now for 2,000 years, uh, are eternally united to him. So from that time point on, where Christ is, we will be, and what Christ is doing, we will be doing. So if somebody says, what, what am I going to be doing in the future? Well, ask yourself, what's Christ doing? If you know, because you'll be there. The bride and the bridegroom are close together unless he has a, a task for us to do. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Seven years of tribulation. There's a time of pre preparation, but the actual time when Antichrist protects Israel for three and a half years, then he breaks his covenant and he persecutes Israel for three and a half years. At that point in time, Satan is cast out of heaven. Probably in Revelation 12, at this point in time, which is the midpoint of the seven years, because we don't know how long the preparation period is, probably no, no longer than a few months. If the rapture occurred today, you'd have to have all of the Jewish people on this planet return to Israel. Uh, there are seven, about seven million in Israel right now, but there are seven million scattered around the world, and where, where are most of them? We must have done something right to make the Jewish people feel at home, right? Way back when I did a series here on uh, God and country, and I showed how our love relationship with the Jewish people began with Roger Williams, the first Baptist in North America. He came from England in 1631, established the first Baptist church in Providence, Rhode Island, 1638. And he was the first one to tell persecuted Jewish people in Europe to come over here. And so today you have in Newport, Rhode Island. Anybody ever been to Newport? All these palatial homes, the, you know, the Rockefellers. And, uh, but there's a synagogue, a small synagogue, going back to 1656, the Toro Synagogue. Periodically, I've taken a New England heritage group from Iowa to visit the uh, uh, heritage place on the East Coast. We always take in a Sunday service at the First Baptist Church in uh, Providence. And then that Sunday afternoon, we go down to Newport. And they, last time we were in the synagogue, they had an alarm. So we all had to get out a bomb threat. I don't know who called in. And no, nothing happened there, but they're very careful in whom they let in. But the rabbi there said, I talked with him years ago. He said, yes, we as Jewish people in America are indebted to you Baptists for having the freedoms we enjoy and the prosperity. But all the Jewish people on this planet have to go back to Israel. When? 
after the rapture, before the actual tribulation begins. In the next, next to the last verse in Ezekiel 39, you read about having left none of them behind. So there will be a regathering to, of the Jewish people to the promised land that is total. And I think the main, it doesn't spell it out, but Christ said in Matthew 24, you will be persecuted of all men. The Jewish people, after the rapture and the Christian element in America is gone, people will turn on the Jewish people. Just like the Iranians did and you know many of the, the Muslim countries, unfortunately. So they'll all make a beeline for Israel and then Antichrist will make a covenant peace with Israel for three years, Daniel 9, and after three and a half years, that covenant will be broken, and then Israel will be persecuted. And you probably don't remember, but we discussed that quite a while ago. Who is going to tear, take care of Israel the last three and a half years of the tribulation? Daniel eleven forty-three. There is an area east of the Dead Sea Ammon, Moab, and Edom that will not be controlled by Antichrist. He's going to be a worldwide dictator for three and a half years, the last half of the tribulation. But Ammon, Moab, and Edom will escape out of his hand. So the Jewish people want to be safe. Christ said in Matthew 24, when you see the abomination of desolation take place, get out. Go where? Take a submarine to North America. No. Take a jumbo jet to Australia, no. Escape to the mountains. And if you're on the Mount of Olives, Jerusalem is about 300 feet lower than Mount of Olives, but if you, you look around, there's just one mountain range that's to the east beyond the Dead Sea. And as a crow flies, it's only 15 miles down to the Dead Sea, all downhill. So if you have a car, uh, you better have good brakes because the road is like this, but you can practically coast all the way. To, and once you cross the Jordan, cross the, you're safe. For how long? For three and a half years. Okay. The, we're talking about the future of believers, not, not so much the future of Israel. At the rejoicing of the marriage of the Lamb, some say the banquet is taking place in heaven, others believe it takes place on earth. Reynolds Shower, one of my friends, believed that, uh, he's in glory now, but believed the marriage was in heaven. It doesn't matter. There are several meals spelled out, but the greatest event of all times, prophetic event, is the return of the Lord. And this is a composite picture. It's based on Daniel chapter 11. I wish we had time to turn to those passages but you have them in your notes, and Revelation chapter 19. Just turn with me to this last passage, Revelation 19. I'd like to show you something. See where you fit in. After the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation, all the armies of the world are gathered against Jerusalem. And in Daniel 11, you have a sequence of attacks. Daniel 11, the king of the south will come at him. And the king of the north, Gog and Magog, I think, takes place three and a half years. 
before then, but a few more Russians are left. And it seems as though they want to move Mesprit to unseat Antichrist, who's ruling from Rome. But he hears about that, probably through his demon spies, and he moves to the eastern end of the Mediterranean. And then it says in Daniel 11, the next to the last verse, he will establish his headquarters between the two seas, the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean, and the Holy Mountain. So for three and a half years, he's going to rule from Jerusalem. But tiding out of the north and east will trouble him. And there's an Asiatic army. Revelation 9.16 tells you it's 200,000. 200, and they're all embroiled in battling in Israel. Up in north, the valley of Armageddon today is called the Plain of Astralon, and around Jerusalem. And as they are gathered together, look at Revelation 19, verse 11. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon, uh, upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Okay, that's Jesus Christ. Now put yourself in this picture, please, because you and I are going to be there. Susan already has a couple horses. You may never have had the means to have a horse or the, the space, but every one of us will return to earth with the Savior on a little horse. That's not to be spiritualized. You are mentioned in verse 14 of Revelation 19. Do you see it there? And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. In the previous chapter, chapter 19, we were at the marriage of the Lamb, and we were given these special garments, the best of linen. And now we're coming back with our bridegroom. It's just the armies in heaven. We don't have a weapon. We're just seated there in beautiful garments. And they're fighting on earth. And as they see us coming down, it says they'll stop fighting against each other and they'll direct their armament against us, against us. In verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on his horse and whom else on the horse? His army, you and me. So who's going to fight against us? All the armies of Armageddon. And we are called an army. And we don't have a weapon. We don't need a weapon. Because twice in that chapter, it says, when Christ is approaching, and we know from Zechariah 14, we're coming back to the Mount of Olives. When he is approaching, a sword of judgment proceeds out of his mouth. In verse 21, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeds out of his mouth. Probably a word saying, drop dead, and all these armies drop dead. The good news of all that is, we're with the Lord, we're totally protected. We don't have a weapon. He's going to take care of the situation. 
when he touches down, all these armies will be dead, except for two individuals. In verse 20, the Antichrist and the false prophet are kept alive, and they're plopped into the lake of fire and fire and brimstone. So um, we have this beautiful picture of the second advent. And when he comes back, he's going to rebuild Jerusalem, according to Zechariah 14, and it's just one more time been destroyed. And the Dome of the Rock probably will no longer exist. And I'm watching the time carefully. I think the Muslims hate this picture, but you could buy it in Israel. It shows the rebuilt temple. No Dome of the Rock. And this is where the people will worship God. Believers who are not killed in the judgments or in the persecution of the tribulation enter into the kingdom in their natural bodies. You and I are in our glorified bodies. We'll return with the Lord from heaven. And these believers will once each year, at least once each year, come up to Jerusalem to pay homage to the Savior. Let me show you a picture uh, before I talk about the visitors coming each year. This is a a spectacular aerial picture higher up, which shows Jerusalem here, right across the Kitron Valley, our hotel, the Seven Arches, on the highest point, or one of the highest points on the Mount of Olives. But if you look eastward, do you see the Dead Sea? the northern end of the Dead Sea, and the mountain range beyond, that is the hiding place for the Jewish people in the tribulation. But when Christ comes back, he's going to do what? He's going to rule the nations with the rod of iron. The millennium begins with glorified believers and believers in their natural bodies who survived the tribulation, Jews and Gentiles. And these people from from around the world, Zechariah 14, will come up once a year to Jerusalem. What feast? The Feast of the Tabernacles, which is a very joyful feast. Even today, they build little booths. They sleep on their rooftops or outside of their houses. And you and I, what are we going to do? Whatever the Lord wants us to do. Chances are, we'll say, okay, you're here. Do you want to meet our Savior, and we'll have the privilege of introducing these people to our Savior. So, as far as the future is concerned, our future is settled with the Savior. We'll be ruling with him. Even the carnal Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, and 3, Paul says to them, don't you know you are going to judge the world? Don't you know you are going to rule the angels, be in charge the angels. Well, for the final event for the believer, and that takes us into eternity, and we'll talk about that in our last session together. Uh, that's what the Lord is building for us now, the heavenly Jerusalem. Beautiful city, tremendous in size. 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. 
That's our eternal home. I don't know what house you live in now. I don't even know how many square feet my house has. I have a little acreage. I planted uh, 90 Norway fir trees. I have a German forest in Iowa. <laughs> but uh, it'll be infinitely more glorious in that city. So can you follow the main events that uh, lie ahead for the believer? Readiness. What's the next one? Rapture. Rewards. Rejoicing. Return with the Lord at the second advent. Ruling with him in the millennium. And then another R, reciting with him. If you want to drop the first and the last one, have it on the fingers of one hand. Rapture, rewards, rejoicing, return, and rule. That's what the Bible forecasts. That's why I say the best is yet to come. Let's go in prayer. Father, we thank thee for these moments together in this topical study of the glorious future that awaits each believer. We thank thee for the fact that we will have a major part in that, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. If there's anyone here this morning who is yet a stranger to the Savior, may that individual even now trust in him whom to know aright is life eternal. For we ask our Savior's name. Amen.